Psychedelic science is exploding and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell, and thanks so much for being with me. Well, today I was joined by Dr. Ben Sessa. Now, Ben is a man that wears a very many hats. He is a psychiatrist in the south of England, where he works in the fields of child and adolescent psychiatry, and he also works with adults suffering from addictions. In addition to this, he provides expert medical testimony, and he is a senior research fellow at Bristol, Cardiff, and Imperial Universities. And it was this role that really put him on my radar because Ben has been at the forefront of the UK psychedelic research community for, well, decades now. He is currently conducting an open-label proof-of-concept study in Bristol investigating the use of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat alcoholism. Uh, That's a much-needed and very promising line of research. He is also the co-founder and chair of Breaking Convention, which is the UK's premier psychedelic conference, and a conference which I very much hope to attend in the future. I don't know how he finds the time, but in addition to all of this, Ben is also a published author of two books exploring psychedelic medicine, as well as really too many scientific publications, etc. to mention here. But I'll provide all the relevant links so you can get up to speed on what the crack is with Ben's work. A good primer, I think, for our conversation today would be to go to his TED Talk, which I will also link to. Ben and I have yet to meet in person. I called him from Australia and I'll hopefully be catching up with him in the UK early next year. I do prefer to chat to people in person, but I knew he was in the middle of research and I was a bit impatient to see how he was going. We had a fairly expansive chat. We covered his path into research, the link between neurodevelopmental trauma and addiction, and how he thinks MDMA's neurochemical profile makes it an excellent tool for the treatment of refractory PTSD and comorbid conditions. I also picked Ben's brains about the current state of play in the UK psychiatric and political spheres and where he ideally sees his research heading in the future. First of all, thanks very much for um, for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Um, not at all. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Ben, I think it would be great for the listeners to just hear a little bit of a background uh, as to how you got involved with um, more specifically psychedelic research, because I know you've been interested in the field you know, for quite some time. Uh, but I'd be interested to see how you transitioned from someone who was a medical doctor and you know curious about this field to someone who was actively participating in in research yeah so um really to understand why and how i got involved in the research you have to go back to before i was in medical school and my interest in psychedelics because it was there that i first started reading about and understanding the important role that psychedelics had in medicine um in the 50s and early 60s And then when I went to medical school and started uh, studying psychiatry particularly and then qualified as a doctor and went on to um, specialize in psychiatry, I would always ask my tutors um, what they knew about the work of the 50s and 60s. And they would always say 
we don't know anything about that. Or what they might say is, that's ridiculous. LSD is a dangerous, addictive drug. If you ever have a patient on LSD, the right treatment is to um, strap them to the table and inject them with sedatives. And uh, I knew this wasn't the case. And I knew there was a whole wealth of research from the 50s and 60s that seemed to just be lacking from the medical curriculum. So in 2004, I wrote a paper on uh, the history of psychedelics in medicine and also up-to-date latest research at the time from Hefter and Max. And that got published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, which was the first publication in the mainstream medical press in the UK since the 60s on psychedelics. Um, and then I went to a couple of conferences. And uh, at that time, it was a very small field. And once you'd been to a couple of conferences, you'd pretty much met all the others in the field. Um, and there were no other doctors at the time really interested in this in the UK. Um, I met them with David Nutt and joined his Bristol pharmacology department and was uh, working with Robin Carhart-Harris on his PhD um, project, um, which then led to the psilocybin um, project in Bristol. Um, so then I was very much in that department. And then the whole department moved to Imperial College London. And I remained an, a member of the department and got involved in all of the, the forthcoming, um, the, the, the subsequent psychedelic studies with psilocybin and LSD and DMT. Um, and I was working on those studies either as a study doctor administering the medication or as a healthy subject receiving the medication, because they generally use people from the department as their guinea pigs. Um, so I was kind of on the fringes of the research for about 10 years doing that, just as co-author on papers. And then about four years ago, got this very uh, unique offer of a large amount of money from a donor to do my own project, which is when I then set up the Bristol MDMA project, which we're currently still doing. Ah, and... Was that, are you at, at liberty to say, Ben, was that a, is that a sort of, you know, private philanthropist or, or what, where was the grounds for, for the research at that stage? Yeah, it, it was a private philanthropist who had an interest in the subject and uh, gave us um, initially £600,000 and then another £250,000 and also gave another £600,000 to Robin's psilocybin depression study. So. Um, he became a, ma a major donor of the of the department there. I think I think that's an, a really um, you know interesting uh, point about someone coming to you um, from let's just say outside of the normal you know bureaucratic or, or administrative channels and giving you a chunk of money and say, listen, you're interested, you have the skill set, just go and do the research. I wonder what your thoughts are if there's. A lot more scope for that happening now. Uh, you know, I've heard of a few things being funded through very large donors with cryptocurrency and things like that. I, I get this feeling that there's a, an burgeoning, uh, you know, uh, purse string that people are trying to get to the, to the people at the vanguard. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, or has that been sort of coming through in, in more recent times? No, absolutely. I mean, I think that to understand the background of this, you have to realize that like 99.99% of all human psychopharmacology research is funded by the pharmaceutical industry because they think nothing of throwing 20 million at this chemical or 20 million at that chemical. 
um, on the off chance that if one of them happens to stick and become the next Viagra or the next Prozac, then they'll make billions. Um, whereas psychedelic research doesn't have support of the pharma industry because there's no real products to sell. Um, all of the drugs are off patent. No, nobody owns these psychedelic drugs. Um, and also they're only used once or twice and then the patient doesn't need to be on any medication. So it's not a financial winner for the pharma industry, which means that all of the research that's happened so far in psychedelics has all come from private funders, crowdsourcing, um, philanthropy donations, memberships of societies, that kind of thing. So this is really why it's taken so very long to, to get this off the ground. It's, it's about the money. So we're very, very lucky when uh, a donor comes along. And say in the case of MAPS, for instance, a lot of their funding comes from large donations from Silicon Valley tech CEOs who've perhaps had psychedelic experiences of themselves and have a lot of millions to, um, to play with. So it's, um, it, 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 it's such a challenge finding the money um, because the normal funding streams aren't available like they might be for other, other pharmaceutical um, projects. It sounds like um, it sounds like there's big donations, but that there isn't that consistency and reliability which is necessary to sort of, you know, run long terms, you know, start a longitudinal study and know that there's going to, you know, the money isn't going to dry up along the track that it's coming from, you know, government organisations or, or whoever would be the sort of state sponsor. Um, is that something yeah. which? Um, planning forward because and we'll, we'll get into the study that you know studies that you're involved with now but I wonder is that being seen as a bottleneck that we will get past as these things become more legitimate and mainstream and maybe um, you know that phrase I don't know who coined it but sort of coming out of the psychedelic closet becomes more almost like a badge of honor for these hugely wealthy you know Silicon Valley-esque people are, are you guys seeing this problem with funding as being just an ongoing issue or is that something that you think that you'll soon be able to move move past i mean you know i know so how long is a piece of string um, but what, what would mean, be your thoughts funding for research is always an ongoing issue even if you're getting government funding mm -hmm. you're constantly chasing one grant or another mm -hmm. there's um you know only about 16 to 20 percent of submitted proposals get funding um this is from government grants so Funding for research is always a, a big issue for everyone. I think what's different with the psychedelic research, so for example, our current MDMA study, because the initial study was so novel and unique, there's no way we would get government funding for it. So it had to come from this private philanthropy source. But what we're currently doing as of this moment is once we've got the first proof of concept study privately funded, we're now in a position to apply to for government funding for subsequent uh, randomized control studies. So it's I think that the large amount of money is absolutely necessary to do the very beginning of the psychedelic research because the government aren't going to fund it. But once you move on to the, the later stages of research and you've proved the concept and the safety and the efficacy, then um, you're more likely to get government funding. So you know, this current project that we're just proposing, we're going to try and get government funding for it. But um, if we don't, then we're pretty much dead in the water because we're not, we're not, I'm not going to get another opportunity like the person who gave us the money before. So money is always difficult in, in psychedelic research and all, all research. All research, human psychopharmacology research is 
very, very expensive. It, it always is. Um, and there's no shortcuts because they have to be proper, approved, well-designed studies. Um, and they cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so, so um, I'd be very, I'm very keen to pick pick up on. I, I understand that you're you're are you currently in the middle of your uh, sort of testing phase with your study at Cardiff at the moment. Because we'll come back to that. Or I'm just wondering. I wanted to pick up on on uh, this initial philanthropy that sort of you know launched your arc of, of what you would say more you know in in the mix instead of co-authoring. I'm wondering first of all where are you guys at with the, the study that you're you're doing now? If you could maybe give give me a bit of background into that. So the study, so the study we're doing now isn't in Cardiff. Um, I was originally going to, going to be doing a study in Cardiff. We were going to be doing a neuroimaging study, um, and that um, sort of dragged on for a very long time in terms of trying to get approvals and funding. Um, and then this chap came along and offered me this large amount of money. At which point I pulled out of the Cardiff arrangements and set up this independent Bristol study. So. The study we're doing at the moment is uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. Um, And the sponsors are Imperial College London, but the study itself is taking place in Bristol. Oh, that's that's, sorry about my confusion there. That's that's cleared that up for me. So um, with regards to the study itself, could you maybe just outline um, how that actually, you know, what the sort of methodology is and how how that sort of works and and what's the aim? Yeah. So psychedelics, classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, et cetera, have a very rich history in treating addictions. Um, in, in fact, the bulk of the work with LSD that was done in the 50s was LSD for alcoholism. Um, so the, the classic psychedelics have this rich history, and they, they were shown to be very effective at the time. Um, like all psychedelic research, it subsequently got shelved for 40 years. Um, and then, as you know, also in the last 10, 15 years, there's been this resurgence of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, traumatic stress disorder, because MDMA has these particular qualities that make it very effective at managing trauma. Um, but no one has ever proposed an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study to treat addictions. And I work in the field of addictions um, as one of my jobs. Um, I have quite a broad job plan with lots of different areas. but one of one of my days work is in addictions and um having having looked at lsd and psilocybin and mdma over the years um i've found mdma to be the most clinically deliverable and tolerated treatment um and i also know that there's high levels of trauma in patients with addictions so we kind of put two and two together and came up with five and said why don't we propose an mdma study for addictions so that's how the alcohol study came about um, alcoholism is incredibly difficult to treat. There's very high rates of relapse. With the current best available medical treatments, rates of relapse to drinking at four years is about 80 to 90 percent. Now, that's um, appallingly bad. We were, we were doing just as well as that in the Victorian times at treating alcoholism. So, it, we chose alcohol because it really is a massive social, clinical, financial burden in the UK um, that's very poorly treated. So this current project, we are taking 20 patients, all of whom have daily dependent physical alcohol um, uh, addiction. They are detoxed with a 
benzodiazepines to um, get them off alcohol. And then they come into the eight-week course of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, um, which it comprises 10 sessions of psychotherapy over eight weeks, um, most of which are non-drug-assisted. They're just face-to-face, uh, normal, outpatient psychotherapy. But two of them, on weeks three and six, are assisted with MDMA. And it's an open-label study, which means it's not a double-blind, randomized control study. There's no control group. Um, and that's normal for a first-ever proposal. It's what you call a proof-of-concept study. So um, they all get MDMA, and we know they get MDMA. Um, and then we follow them up at three, six, and nine months, looking at their drinking behavior and uh, a whole host of other um, psychiatric um, measurements uh, in terms of uh, mood and anxiety and relationships and quality of life and sleep. And, and, and we also very closely monitor their physiological status throughout the study. Um, they have blood tests, they have an ECG before and afterwards. And during the MDMA sessions, we monitor their physiological observations uh, throughout the day. So it's primarily a safety and tolerability study. Um, and although obviously we're interested in their outcomes in terms of their drinking behavior, though the drinking behavior is not the primary outcome measure. The primary outcome measure is their safety and tolerability. And then if this study goes well and all of the patients tolerate it and can manage the therapy and there's no adverse events, we can then go on and do a double-blind placebo control study in which we can separate mm. the MDMA from the uh, placebo effect of the psychotherapy. Well, I, I wish you all the very best with that because I, I have, um, I, I, I feel your, your pain, I'm sure, in treating alcoholics. I think it's, um, it sort of bears repeating that um, I think alcoholism is underestimated in terms of its impact. I would say that um, I, I have experience working in, as a drug and alcohol counselor in, in, a, in a rehab and regardless what was, you know, Mm -hmm. posited as being on through the media you know the, the the sort of drug that everyone was getting addicted to whether it was meth or whatever you know my sort of observations was that the majority of people throughout that time were were alcoholics and i think it bears repeating as well that and it's the one or one of the major substances through which the detox needs to be medically managed because it's physiologically the most dangerous like dangerous and you need uh, to incrementally decrease your alcohol intake or you risk yeah. serious health issues yeah so yeah so um i mean if you i was gonna say if you work in the field then you know um you know it, it's certainly not underestimated within the field of addictions it's well recognized as the most the most damaging widespread addiction that that we we work with here in the uk with some twenty thousand deaths a year I, th I think I more so mean in I think in in the media because it's you know it's what people people have a few pints on a Saturday night and and I don't think they realise that you know the dimensionality of oh it's just he drinks a little bit too much you know in terms of the devastating impact that that can have on people's lives and um you know just reducing life expectancy and all sorts of things it's really um I don't know I just found that there was a, a different appreciation in in the in society of how how devastating alcoholism was versus other drugs, you know, that are maybe a little bit more demonized. You're absolutely right about that. And, you know, a lot of attention is paid to opiate dependence and 
uh, cannabis use or cocaine. But those are, you know, absolutely tiny, small fry. We're talking um, around 800 deaths a year due to heroin, around 800 deaths a year due to methadone. Um, and as I said, 20,000 deaths a year due to alcohol, um, with, you know, costing the UK around 20 billion pounds a year to manage the problematic drinking and the uh, alcohol dependence. I think I think one of the big differentiators is, as well there and those, those statistics is that the alcohol, because it's legal, we people who are drinking it know exactly what proof it is, whereas you could possibly even argue that some of the you know that the statistics around illegal substances are to do with the consumer essentially's inability to to tell you know what it is that they're taking. Um, you know, sort of the, the the problem. One of the big problems of prohibition is you just can't standardize what what you're putting into your body. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I always say is that drugs don't kill people; prohibition does. Um, in all the cases of drug drug deaths that I uh, that I've dealt with over over the years. Every single one of them can be attributed to the fact that the drugs are prohibited. Um, so there's no doubt that um, the drug prohibition drug laws as they stand, which are now 47 years old, are immoral, unethical, unpoliceable, dangerous, killing young people, creating crime and costing unnecessary amounts of money without actually reducing or solving the drug problem. Yeah. And I'm interested to know, uh, uh, Ben. You, the, I would imagine that your your history, because I, I understand that you're uh, you're a child and adolescent psychiatrist as well. Is that still part of your clinical practice? Yeah. So the, yep. I mean, I, I don't know what I, do, I don't know have any statistics to hand, but my anecdotal experience was that the comorbidity of, um, let's say, d- development like trauma, childhood trauma, um, and addiction, especially alcoholism. Was, was was very high. The coefficient was very high. I don't know what your thoughts are on, and I'm wondering then is that was that the sort of rationale? And we can talk no. I'd love to talk a little bit more about how MDMA is almost like the the perfect drug for treating mm. in a way, helping yeah, people um, to, to deal with trauma. <clears throat> I'm wondering is that, no, is that what led you that sort of logical conclusion? No, absolutely. Um, like I said, I I have a a very broad job plan which involves adult addictions and working with adolescents and working in psychopharmacology and also working in the courts and legal system. And all of that, whilst it all sounds very disparate, it's all tied together by this concept of developmental psychopathology and this trajectory from childhood trauma into adolescent mental illness and adult mental illness and addictions. So that's the theme that runs through all of my work. Having spent many, many years working with abused and maltreated children, and now working with adults with addictions, it all ties together. Um, I would say in roughly 80 to 90% of addictions, and especially alcohol, underlying it is a history of child abuse and maltreatment. So these are the most strongest predictors of adult mental health problems. It's um, a disordered attachment relationship and growing up in a, in a maladaptive environment in childhood. It, it underpins all of my work. It would be really helpful. Um, there's a couple of terms there which sound very central. Um, one would be around, you know, attachment theory, and also then with regards to how how trauma is mm-hmm. characterized. Um, I suppose from a psychological sense, or let's say a neurodevelopmental sense, because um, 
I think sometimes people, you know, the understanding of what constitutes trauma is not very well reported by the media, and also um, attachment is, you know, in common parlance. So I'd be, I'd yeah. be interested to hear how, how you would sort of, you know, those two. If you could help help me unpack those two those two terms, because I think they're pretty central. No, absolutely. So attachment is the um, phenomenon in which a infant, so a young preverbal child, um, forms an emotional bond with its primary caregiver, usually the mother. And it's an absolutely beautiful and amazing thing to watch when working with children and families. Um, and really, in some ways, I almost see this as a, a default problem, a design problem within the human brain because it assumes that the attachment will be good and therefore becomes the blueprint for psychological functioning for life because it's within this early primary attachment that your fundamental aspects of the human psyche are laid down and become the blueprint for the rest of your life. So the fundamental qualities of what is love, what is care, what is trust, what is, um, what is the value in telling the truth, what is the value in seeking attention and having your needs met? Um, what is violence? What is aggression? Um, what is care for others? These are the fundamental aspects of our personalities are formed very early in life. And to understand this at a neurobiological level, you have to understand um, a couple of very important brain areas. There's an area of the brain called the amygdala which is a part of the brain that responds to fear in the environment. And it's a very instinctive um, uh, process that happens very quickly without any conscious or higher level thinking involved. It, um, it, it triggers a, a fight or flight response and alerts you to manage danger. Um, now, all mammals have this amygdala, and it's a very fundamental aspect of the mammalian brain. Um, now, in tandem with this is, is uh, the much more sophisticated human part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, in which you would use logic and reasoning, and you would be able to overcome this instinctive fear-driven amygdala response and make a rational response. Now, if you're a child that grows up in an environment in which from one moment to the next, you don't know if your primary caregiver is going to give you a kiss and a cuddle and play with you, or if they're going to punch you or kick you or rape you, then you grow up with an exaggerated amygdala response. You find things more frightening. You're more on edge. You are constantly on the lookout for the next assailant. And in many ways, this is a positive, healthy, neuroadaptive response. Um, it doesn't, there's no evolutionary advantage to seeing the good in people or to using rash, rational arguments or logical reasoning. If you do that, you're going to die because no one's caring for you. So you grow up with this distorted brain. And what we've seen is, um, through looking at the brains of people with PTSD, physical brain changes that occur during infancy and last for life. Um, and the result is that the person grows into this jumpy, edgy, scared um, person. And what happens with this, this kind of brain state is you then develop very rigid narratives, both about yourself and about the world. So about yourself, you develop these narratives of, I am useless, I am a failure, I am a slut, I deserve to be exploited, it's my fault. 
and about the world. Um, the world is dangerous. People are not to be trusted. Get the boot in first. And so then you go into adulthood with these uh, personality approaches. And of course, those behaviors that perhaps allowed you to survive your early childhood become antisocial um, behaviors as you go into teenage years and adulthood. And from here, um, the, the recall of these painful memories is so great that it's preferable to just blunt your emotions and numb yourself with um, dangerous drugs such as heroin or more dangerous drugs such as alcohol to just take away the pain. So in many ways, PTSD and addictions are almost, can almost be seen as a positive adaptive response to a, a bruised and humiliated and scared child. Um, you know, all of us want to protect ourselves from pain and we would all do what it takes to do so. Um, so it's very difficult working with this population of patients because their version of reality is different from those of a person who's had a positive attachment. Um, when I ask my patients to look out of the window in the clinic and tell me what they see, they'll say, you know, that guy looks dodgy, she looks really mean, I wouldn't trust him. And I say, I look out of the window and I say, he looks nice, she'd be my friend, I'm sure she'd help me out. You know, why do we see a different view of the world? And it all comes down to just how important this attachment relationship is in forming the subsequent human personality. So it's terribly difficult to turn that around. Um, it's as if... Uh, it's as if a person said to me, actually, Ben, you're a really horrible person and everyone is really bad and nasty and you mustn't trust anyone and the world is a dangerous, unsafe place. I wouldn't believe them if they said that to me. So why would my patients be in any position to change? And the, the reason, one of the things that drives me with psychedelics is that in 20 years of medical practice, they are without doubt the most effective tools I've ever come across that can actually do something about changing these rigid narratives. Um, it's very hard to change these personality traits once they've been set in childhood because they've become a survival mechanism. So the psychedelics, and particularly MDMA, are the closest thing that I've come to in my medical practice that can actually tackle these. Um, you, uh, one thing you've just mentioned there, I wonder... This sort of um, these sort of ossifications of core beliefs that yeah. are you know all negatively skewed, which seem to come in online through attachment. Would I be right in saying that you know, the the job of the prefrontal cortex is to sort of mitigate you know the let's say listen you know looking out the window. I think I don't know if it was yourself or somebody I've heard say the example of if someone rushed up on stage with a knife at a conference, yeah. the amygdala is going to fire, but the the prefrontal cortex is the bit that's going to tell you that he's wearing a chef's hat and he's probably yeah. just you know the caterer yeah that's that's me and you know that's absolutely right and when you have a positive experience of childhood when you are nurtured and loved and cared for and, and taught all of these positive values you have a a more developed prefrontal cortex so when we do the scanning of these brains of people with ptsd not only do they have an exaggerated enlarged amygdala response, they have a shrunken prefrontal cortex because they haven't developed those skills to see the good in people and to use rational arguments. It's almost as if their brains are stuck at this um, kind of um, chimpanzee level of um, 
this mammalian brain that doesn't use the higher human qualities of rationality and judgment and reasoning. Um, it just jumps straight to this amygdala response, which doesn't require any of the higher conscious processes. So it's very difficult to undo that, but it is possible. Um, otherwise, I'd be out of a job. Um, and it would be very depressing to think that it'd be very depressing to think that you would say to a patient, I'm sorry, but because your first five years were lousy, then you're always going to be like this. But sadly, that has been um, very much a narrative within psychiatry for a long time. The concept that personality disorder is untreatable. Um, you know, it's, it's not untreatable, but it's certainly very hard to treat as our addictions because of this rigidity. But like I say, with the psychedelic chemicals are the, are the best thing that we've had in 75 years of psychiatric prescribing to actually do something about tackling these narratives. Well, I think that's an interesting overlay. I'm, I'm not very well versed on it, but these, the, I suppose the, the, the way that you would describe personality, and I'm talking in sort of technical sense, and I'll be looking into that a little bit more in future podcasts. I think that's a very interesting area how, that, how psychedelics are going to mediate that. But sort of let's say the big five model of the big five personality traits would I be right in saying that there's like temperaments that children have that then sort of become personality traits, which then make up their profile in their sort of late, late 20s? I, I understand that there's some research that's showing that psychedelics are, you know, sort of challenging that canon that, oh, you know, we can't create statistically significant difference in personality traits once yeah. your prefrontal cortex is sort of baked in ostensibly. I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so a, a, a very important paper came out of Roland Griffith's team at Johns Hopkins University when they were looking at the mystical experiences occasioned by psilocybin. They looked at personality traits and then they followed them up years later. And people had changed significantly towards greater openness. So they'd had a radical and um, permanent change. Um, over the time period covered um, in their core personality structure, which is a fascinating result and obviously not that surprising for those of us who who are interested in psychedelics. Um, you know, you, you do get occasions where spontaneously personality would seem to change. And one of the interesting such occasions is re religious or spiritual experience. And, you know, we've all heard of people who are, you know, mean, horrible, nasty people who kind of find God and then suddenly become these this altered radical change in personality. Um, they can often be quite irritating, but um, that that happens with with that kind of severe peak mystical experience. Um, so what's interesting about psychedelics is here we have an organic tool that induces a peak mystical experience. So it doesn't surprise me that psychedelics could have this capacity to alter personality and. You know, this is a fundamental paradigm shift in our understanding of, of, of some of these long-term mental health problems, because, as I say, personality disorder has always been thought of as rigid and unchangeable. Um, and indeed, this is the same reason why addictions are so difficult to treat, because you can mop up the, the overlying substance dependence relatively easily. But if it's being driven by a core personality structure, which is so damaged and so rigid, then um, it's likely that the addiction will return, which is why rates of relapse are so high. 
So um, tools that can change the core personality are um, absolutely um, fascinating and uh, holds great promise for the treatment of many mental health problems. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that I, I actually think from listening in to the sort of general research that that finding that Roland Griffiths, I think it was like a one standard deviation difference in openness after a year that, that blew me away. I thought, you know, for, for people listening, openness is that, you know, openness to experience and people who aren't very high in like a standard deviation is quite a lot. The, the ability to change one's personality and especially if that personality is disordered I, I just see that as being i don't know if 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 people really appreciate you know in the mainstream how massive that is how difficult that can has been in the past mm. and how sort of how um you know it just was one of those things at undergraduate level it was just like personality is baked in it cannot be changed and I, i've i don't know what your thoughts are but i've always found that working with adult clients to be very demoralizing for them because um they they get wind of this and they think oh well this is the way that i am and this there creates a type of i don't know fatalism and it doesn't exactly motivate people to continue with with therapy if they think that there's just no change happening regardless absolutely and it's it's a narrative that must be tackled and um but there is still a great deal of stigma around personality disorder and addictions as if people are choosing to behave in this way and they they have no you know you know they 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 should be able to just pull us, pull themselves together and stop drinking and it's their own fault and you know it's 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 absolutely vile when one comes across these attitudes especially within mental health workers themselves because not only is it morally and ethically absolutely vile and people should be more compassionate but it's also scientifically wrong um it, it we understand very well the developmental roots of trauma and how they lead on to long-term mental health problems including personality disorder and addictions and it's absolutely essential that people within the field and people in the uh, wider public understand this and have a compassionate um a compassionate understanding nobody chooses a career of a heroin or alcohol addict um nor nor that of a psychopath or 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 a borderline personality disorder you know these are these are thrust upon people through their unfortunate experience as children which were certainly not their fault and you know sometimes it's very frustrating with my patients and sometimes i want to just shake them and say look this is going to sound very arrogant but you are wrong about yourself and you are wrong about the world you are not a useless waste of space and the world is not a dangerous place. I'm really sorry that you were told that when you were just two feet tall. You should not have been told that. It was not your fault. And if you'd been told that you were a good, attractive, able, high-achieving person, and the world was a happy place full of good people who will care for you, that's what you would believe about the world. Because the truth is that most people everywhere are really, really lovely. And the truth is also that the world is predominantly a very, very safe place. Society just wouldn't work if it wasn't. Um, You know, maybe people think that society is kept in check by authoritarian rules and policing and these sorts of things, but it's not at all. Those aren't what keeps society in check. Um, If I think of, say, the town where I work with, say, 20,000 people in it, there's, what, eight policemen on duty of an evening? For 20,000 people, 
Um, the reason we're not out robbing, stealing and raping one another is not because we're kept in check by authorities. We're kept in check by our positive attachments, um, which have shown us that from the earliest of ages that love, care, sensitivity, gentleness, charity, support for one another are the most important factors of our personalities. And so it's a minority of people who've experienced negative attachments that don't see the world in that way. But for those that have had that kind of maltreatment, um, they literally live in a different universe um, because our universe is very much dictated um, by our experience and particularly as very young children. Um, but it does become very stuck and rigid because it's a survival technique. Um, I, I think a good example would be I might go and see in, in casualty in the middle of the night a 14-year-old girl who's taken an overdose or cut herself. And as I go into the cubicle, the nurses who are uh, those who are less um, understanding of these things might say, oh, be careful with her, Ben. She's a liar. She's a cheat. She's an attention seeker. She's, she's going to manipulate you. And I will go up to this girl and I will say to her, good for you for seeking attention. And good for you for developing an ability to manipulate your environment. Because if you hadn't, you'd have died as a child. But now here you are going into adulthood and these traits that have kept you alive are now becoming antisocial and are preventing you from functioning. So how can we find another way for you to express your pain and anger? But it's difficult because you're asking a person to give up these adaptive traits that have got them where they are. So it's it's a real challenge. And um, in my experience, MDMA is the best thing we've had so far to actually do that. A metaphor that you've used before, um, and I think it's um, it's really, it has a very high explanatory power, is that um, MDMA functions as a sort of a, a life jacket, which allows people to float in the sort of, in the space where oh. their actual trauma is within these deeper parts of, of the brain mm -hmm. and I'm just as you're saying this I'm thinking almost like one part of the step and, and as I said having worked with with uh, uh, um, addicts myself the, the the point where you there's almost like a, a I think like a prior stage to that it's like listen you have to take off the flippers first you know and you're saying listen I'm underwater here these are extraordinarily useful for me and it's 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 I've encountered some extraordinarily impressive people um, who's, like you say, when you hear their life stories, when you then hear the things that they have done, once they're contextualized, it's sort of axiomatic. It's like, oh, oh of course you would have done this or, or, or it, it, well, I would do exactly the same in your situation. I think that, um, yeah. that um, understanding and it's a bit of a hard sell at times especially within therapy, to say, well, this has served you very well in the past, as we've said, um, but let's not do that anymore. Um, and I think it's difficult for, for people to delineate that from being, oh, let's, let's, let's go from being at least safe in some capacity to being extraordinarily vulnerable. Yeah. You know, it's very difficult for people to make that jump without some, some life raft, I suppose. And I, I wonder if, if does that, metaphor would that apply to people in that instance where they think their their behavioral styles have been very useful absolutely um again it goes back to this um 
trauma resulting in a neuroadaptive response to protect you from pain. Um, and this is the reason why there is a 50% treatment resistance in PTSD and why the relapse rates for addictions are so high, because you're asking them to give up their defense mechanism. And that's very frightening, because once you've been traumatized as a child, the rest of your life is all based around doing anything but going back to that night when you were eight years old and your grandfather came into your bedroom. All of your adaptive responses thereafter are based around, I will never go to that memory again, which then leads to the substance misuse to numb yourself. So then when you, if you think about traditional psychotherapy, trauma-focused psychotherapy, where you then sit down in a room with a therapist and they say, tell me about your rape, you're out the door because you'll do anything but go there. What MDMA does is it provides a emotional containing platform, mental space, in which you can go there and you can think about and concentrate on and reflect upon and talk about that terrifying experience that you've spent the last 30 or 40 years of your life doing anything but dare think about. So it, it does act as a sort of bulletproof vest in a way, or a life jacket. Um, to give the patient permission to go there without being overwhelmed by the negative affect that normally accompanies the call of those memories. So um, it's quite extraordinary to watch a person doing that. Um, with, without the MDMA, they just say, I'm not talking about that. Um, but then with the MDMA, suddenly they can talk in great detail. Um, and a nice analogy of this would be... Um, an interesting story of my own. I remember when I was 18 taking ecstasy with my friends and we were lying there after some rave all loved up. This is in 1990 before I went to medical school. And um, we were all lying there and somebody said, oh, wow, this is amazing. Try and think of the worst thing you can imagine. And we went, oh, wow, let's imagine our mums dying. And we all went, it's not that bad. And you know, I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know it at the time. What I was doing was kind of what the, the, the cornerstone of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. It's you can suddenly go to what would normally be an intolerable thought and be with it. Now, for a patient who has addictions or PTSD, this is, this is groundbreaking, paradigm-shifting stuff in psychotherapy because that huge treatment resistance suddenly becomes treatable because um, they can go to these places. And, you know, MDMA has a particular psychopharmacological profile that allows it to do this. That profile is something which um, it, it's really important that people understand because I, I think there's a little bit of confusion. Let's say, you know, you've mentioned there yourself, um, it you know, MDMA is most sort of culturally associated, obviously, with the term ecstasy and, and rave mm. scene and, and that all as sort of you know began I suppose in a way in 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 England and in, in the major sense but um a lot of people who have that in their past you may be listening are thinking I don't understand how ecstasy can be so relaxing because I was you know I was uh, dancing like you know for twelve hours straight and grind the side of my face off so mm. I think it would be interesting or useful if you could unpack you know at a sort of receptor level I, I suppose what would be the three major uh, aspects which make it useful and maybe there's more that i'm missing but yeah. the sort of ability at a, at a receptor level to suffuse people with a certain amount of well well-being yeah. and then also to provide like an anxiolytic element and also 
for them to be focused enough to follow along with the you know the the, the cognitive element so i suppose it, was a, it would be really really yeah. helpful if you could maybe just explain why its profile makes it such a such a perfect candidate yeah so it works across a number of different receptors and in totality they add up to this subjective effect that's so effective for trauma um, at the level of the serotonin 1A and 1B receptors, it causes a reduction in anxiety and depression and provides this positively felt mood, which um, I suppose is the kind of ecstasy euphoria type part of it. And that's a very valuable experience in a patient who's never had a positively felt mood. Um, you know, a patient who, because of their amygdala activation, has lived their whole life in a state of hypervigilance and fear. To then um, experience this positively felt mood is extremely valuable. Now, a cynic would say, yes, but this is just a false, drug-induced, transient experience. And indeed it is. But as a platform for a patient to realize what that feels like, it's extremely valuable. And I've had patients say to me, you know, wow, is this what love feels like? And I'll say, yes, this, this is what it feels like to not be scared. And they've never felt that. So, okay, it's, it's drug-induced and it's transient, but it gives them a platform on which to realize it is possible to not feel scared. So that's at the 1A, 1B receptor. Um, it also has an effect on the serotonin 2A receptors, which is the site where the classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin work. But it's not nearly as intense as those classic psychedelics. So we're not talking sort of morphing faces and gross hallucinations, but it does create a sense of thinking outside the box and seeing things in a new light and rebranding um, previously rigid experiences. Um, and then it works um, at the dopamine and noradrenaline levels, and this is the amphetamine part of the molecule, to stimulate the patient, um, which is positive because that encourages them and stimulates them to engage in therapy. It, 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 that stimulation effect pushes them on and, and allows them to talk. But whilst it's doing that, at the same time, paradoxically, via the alpha-1 and 2 receptors, it's creating a sense of relaxation, uh, sort of soporific relaxation, which is good because that takes the edge off the hypervigilance effects of, of recall of trauma. So you've got this, what they call optimal arousal zone, in which the patient is both speeded up and slowed down at the same time. Um, and anyone who's taken MDMA would recognize that peculiar sensation of being both stimulated and relaxed at the same time. Um, and another effect is on at a hormonal level where MDMA facilitates the release of uh, oxytocin. Now, oxytocin is a hormone released from the brains of breastfeeding mothers, which engenders a sense of connectivity and bonding and attachment. And so when you add up all of these qualities, the, the 1A, 1B receptor, reduced mood and anxiety, the mild stimulation at the dopamine nor adrenaline receptors, and the paradoxical relaxation at the alpha-1 and 2. And then you also throw in the hormonal effects with oxytocin. What you get in totality is a compound that very remarkably selectively impairs the fear response whilst leaving the other faculties intact. And this is very important quality because it's the selective impairment of fear that makes it so important. Many drugs will impair fear response. A bag of heroin will impair your fear response. A bottle of vodka would impair your fear response. But on those compounds, you are also, in a very messy way, 
also messing up your cognitions, your memories, your ability to reflect. Um, but with MDMA, what's so fascinating is all of those faculties are fine and they can talk and remember and debate and basically go through many hours of psychotherapy, but with just the fear bit missing. So that's quite extraordinary. And I always ask my patients the next morning, you know, you, you talked for hours yesterday in, on MDMA. Do, do you remember any of it? Was it all just drug addled gobbledygook? And they always say, no, not at all. I remember every word and I stand by every word. And not only was I able to talk about it yesterday when I was under the influence of the medicine, but today with the medicine no longer on board, I feel as if I have resolved things in this state that have now stuck. And I've made the realizations during that session and they are now with me. And it was the ability for the medicine to take away the fear long enough for me to do that work that's now stayed. So this is a really, truly remarkable quality. I think that's that, that bit about its, um, what would the word, it's the fact that, that these, uh, this awareness sticks and that you can, you know, you said the protocol is you're actually only administering uh, MDMA, what is it, three times? Well, in, in, twice, you know, out of, twice over, like eight. over eight weeks. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So I think that that is a good um, that is a good uh, refutation to what people would say. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. So they're loved up and okay. So they're relaxed and okay. Maybe they can talk a little bit more openly about this. But that all goes away, you know, as the um, sort of chemical effects wear off. And I'm thinking now from a therapist perspective, that would be extraordinarily useful because. Um, if, if anything, maybe just giving people that time to consolidate what they've thought about and process it themselves and then come back for subsequent sessions, I'm sure I'm sure that th they will be as fruitful, if not more, um, because people will be able to properly integrate them in, in a way where they're sort of, they can check back in and say, well, this can't be anything to do with the chemical effects of the, the, the you know, the substance because I took it, you know, days ago. So uh, I'm wondering... Are you going to capture information about that with the, the participants to sort of, as you've mentioned before, to walk in with a clipboard to the people who are inevitably going to push back and say, oh, well, you know, well done. You got some people happy on when you gave them ecstasy. Are you conducting interviews with them? In, or how are you going to capture that information about people's ability to process um, difficult memories in the sessions which weren't um, mediated by MDMA? Well, it's, you know, the structure of our course is much like the structure of um, all, all psychedelic therapies, where the non-drug sessions are just as important as the drug sessions. Um, it's, it, you have, it's the preparation sessions and then the drug sessions, followed by the non-drug integration sessions where you really do the work. Um, and because they get two sessions with MDMA, so the first couple of sessions before the medicine, it's very much about preparation and what to expect. And at that point, they'll start to build up an agenda of, you know, I, I'd quite like to talk about this issue with my brother that I've never been able to go to. And then they'll have the MDMA and they'll talk on the MDMA. And then in the subsequent integration sessions, that's when they'll start to unpackage the realizations they've made. And this is where we really see them saying from a qualitative point of view, I now realize that... Um, I now realize that I shouldn't have felt like this and I shouldn't have been treated like this. And I've been wrong about myself all these years. And it's really quite enlightening when they say that 
when they say, I now realize this wasn't my fault and I don't need to look at the world in this way and I don't need to drink because I've, I, it's like they've experienced a sense of enlightenment. What we, what we do is uh, we follow them up at three, six and nine months um, with this particular study to get long-term outcome data. Um, and obviously we're looking at their drinking behavior, but we're looking at lots of other things like their mood states, their sense of anxiety, their quality of life, their level of functioning, their relationships, their sleep, um, their employment status. So we're following up these things for nine months with all of our subjects. We're also looking, um, we're also doing some measures around empathy and openness um, and uh, just to see if we get some shifts in that. And so far, we've got some very good data on that. That's good to hear that it's it's progressing as as was you know hypothesized. When do you think that data will be ready for? Like, have you got a sort of conference or, or time in mind when you're you're hoping to to uh, present? Well, we've we've got seven people involved in the study so far, four of whom have completed um, all of their their the actual eight week course. Actually, no, I've got I'm doing MDMA tomorrow, um, it, and then he'll be the fourth. Um, we're hoping this study runs until August next year, 2019, at which point the money runs out. Um, and we're hoping to get around 15 people, hopefully, before the money runs out. Um, and then we'll publish towards the end of next year. Um, but I will be presenting preliminary data at, uh, at any sort of talks I'm going to between now and then. Um, as I said, the main, the main outcome data for this study are the safety and tolerability um, data, uh, more so than the drinking behavior. Um, as David Nutt said to me the other day, he said, if you can give 20 people MDMA in the UK and nobody dies and the media doesn't shut you down and the government doesn't, doesn't cease the project, then you've succeeded. He said, if a couple of them don't drink as much, that's a bonus. So really, that's a good illustration of what a safety and tolerability study is. The next study, when we, when we do the same, pretty much the same regime, but with a uh, randomized control group as well with a placebo, then we can really separate the um, the outcome effects, um, whether it's the uh, the MDMA or just the uh, wonderful therapists. Brilliant. Um, well, I'm very much looking forward to to hearing about the the preliminary results, which sound very very promising, and mm. um, I hope that I hope that this that yeah that all the rel relative relevant parties play ball and we can start to move these through into into the latter you know to the business end yeah <laughs> of where, where we're really looking at you know effect sizes and and, and things like that and it, it it can't come it can't come soon soon enough either because you know i get i get five or ten emails a week from people all over the world saying um you know can i get mdma therapy and you know these are not people who are just after some free mdma mdma is not hard to get hold of these are people who write to me with these heart-rendering stories of trauma telling me that they've tried everything and they've, you know, they've tried to take their life. They've been on every medication their psychiatrist has given them. They've been sectioned into hospital and they've got nowhere. So there's a very high demand of people out there who, who really need this treatment. There is um, the sort of research that you're doing. I'm sure you, there's, there's a couple of organizations who I suppose might be on the radar. You've mentioned, you know, your, the, the framework of psychiatry. How are the Royal College, the Royal Colleges, and the Royal College of Psychiatrists like? What, 
I haven't mm. really heard. I've been looking. I haven't really heard a lot of noise being made. No, you know, well, from, from their departments. You're very astute then, because they haven't been that good, in my opinion. I mean, they've been broadly accepting. They haven't been against it. Um, and indeed, I did a symposium there over ten years ago on psychedelics. Um, but I, I, they should be doing more. I mean, I think, for example, the um, the Misuse of Drugs Act. I I stuck my hand up at uh, AGM of the Royal College about five, eight years ago. And I said, look, the elephant in the room here is the Misuse of Drugs Act. This is the most appalling piece of legislation that's harming our patients, and we must lobby the government for change. And the, the, the then president sort of wrung his hands very anxiously and said, it is not our job to lo- lobby the government. It is our job to follow the law of the land. And I said to him, look, I passionately disagree with respect. Um, it's exactly our job to present evidence-based medicine and research to the government and to lobby for change. That's what we've done with obesity and smoking and seatbelts in cars. You know, the, the Royal College's lead the way on pushing government policy change according to emerging evidence. And we've been sitting on this outrageous piece of legislation for 47 years, and we all know it's wrong. We should be pushing. So, and indeed, only with all the stuff around cannabis that came out over the summer, the government, uh, the college put out a statement saying, you know, we will continue to abide by the laws of the land. And it, it's it's extremely sad, and I'm not quite sure what's behind it, or whether it's just individual personalities behind it, or what. But no, the Royal College of Psychiatrists should certainly be doing more to look at this issue, because I think I I can't think of any other government policy that stood unaudited for 47 years. Um, you know, since 1971, we've radically overhauled our approach to other institutions like health transport standards, food standards, education, the courts, the judiciary, probation, the policing, all of these institutions have changed beyond recognition in the last 47 years in response to emerging evidence, and so they should. And yet the Misuse of Drugs Act is exactly the same as the day it was written in 1971, 47 years ago, with these bizarre, fictional, arbitrary categories of Class A, B, and C that are meaningless from a psychopharmacological point of view and just do not solve the drug problem. So it is absolutely in need of urgent auditing and review. Um, So it can be an evidence-based document rather than the piece of pseudoscience that it currently is. Hmm. And I mean, there's been this sort of organizational quiet, I suppose, from, from the Royal College, but, and, and as much as you want to say, I would imagine that, you know, in in the bar afterwards when the ties are loosened there's people who are you know your colleagues coming up to you sort of off the record and going yeah you know this is i totally agree x y and z i mean have you experienced is it a type of maybe too strong a word but is there a sort of a an obsequiousness not wanting to put their head above the parapet or you know is there individually a lot of agreement with you and then just organizationally just this sort of blanket statement to abide by the law or yeah, no, absolutely. And it's not just the college. I mean, off the record, the police, the, the courts, the judges, even the politicians, most sensible politicians off the record are happy to say, we know we've dug ourselves into a big pit with the Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, and we need to find a way out. 
everybody knows it's rubbish. This is not so extraordinary. I think one thing that's quite interesting, when I first started um, looking into drug policy 20 years ago, the word prohibition, it was only ever used in reference to the 1920s alcohol prohibition, which everybody everybody laughs at and recognizes as a political folly that was useless. Now, you know, what exactly have we all been living in since 1971, if not exactly the same thing, but far, far worse? You know, we've created this monster, which is fed by the criminal underworld, and it doesn't work to solve the drug, drug problem. So, you know, going back to your question, why is it not shifting? And I think there's a number of reasons. There are certain groups who are staunchly opposed to changes in drug policy. One would be the drinks industry, who are very happy to own the only monopoly on the only altered state we're allowed, drunkenness. Um, another group, and, and there's very good evidence that, that the UK drinks industry have actively um, opposed any attempts to change drug policy and have financed um, anti-drug policy change reform groups. Um, the other group that would oppose it would be the criminal underworld themselves, who again are more than happy to own the monopoly on the supply and distribution of, of these compounds that are immensely popular. You know, 750,000 doses of MDMA are taken every weekend in the UK. Three quarters of a million doses of MDMA every weekend for the last 25 years. So the, the drug business itself is massive. Um, you know, cannabis is second, it, it's third to wheat and rice as the international cash crop, yet completely outside of the control of government. So the, the criminals themselves don't want to change. And then finally, the other group are really these Middle England voters who, frankly, have just been lied to since 1971 about the relative harms and dangers of, uh, of drugs. And they've just taken this party line because successive governments of all different um, persuasions have held this party line so intelligent, erudite people hear the word drug and think danger. And like we said at the beginning of this conversation, it's extraordinary because cigarettes and alcohol are not, are not considered drugs in that context, yet they're by far the most dangerous. And not just because they're the more widely used. Per capita use, they're the most dangerous drugs by a long way. So it's, it's an extraordinary situation that has no clinical relevance, no evidence base, yet it seems to persist. And then one asks the question, well, why has it persisted? And then that's a very difficult question. Um, and you start getting into the realm of conspiracy theories and all sorts of things. But one way or another, this outrageous piece of government legislation has persisted throughout the world um, based on the most sinister and um, weak premise of trying to eradicate drugs, I think. I mean, it's, it's just an extraordinarily bad idea. I mean, I suppose trying to be as empathic as possible, trying to imagine what was going through the minds of people in 1971 when they came up with this, you know, maybe it was a very noble idea. If we, if we ban everything, then they'll go away. Well, here we are 47 years ago, 47 years later, they haven't gone away at all. We created this enormous social problem and people are dying. And I suppose some people might say, well, we just need to fight the war on drugs even harder. But what, do we need another 47 years? Do we need an, twice as many prisons? Will they then go away? It doesn't seem likely. Um, humans have been altering their consciousness for hundreds of thousands of years. We're, and we're not about to stop. So perhaps a more 
creative and effective policy is, is not total eradication through prohibition, but working out ways in which to work with drug use um, to reduce harm as opposed to just trying to eradicate them because it's patently not worked. Yeah. Well, I think um, uh, and uh, you did mention that and almost to play sort of devil's advocate or to, to let's say, steel man the arguments for people who, who wanted to um, oppose, you know, just the sort of, what well, let's say, the cognitive liberty argument. I think in, in the 20s, there probably, it was very misguided, but there was that belief of um, the more puritanical element, which was saying, you know, this mm-hmm. working man coming back, having spent the family's, the you know all the money uh, you know uh, and and the family were you know sort of destitute as, as a result and, and that does you know happen and then i think in the 70s i think stanislav Grof mentioned it's like that there's this something along the lines of the, the powers that be have feel this responsibility to keep the dionysian element of society in check and i don't know i mean i wasn't around then but i don't know i know that that obviously characterized Nixon's era, but in the, in the seventies and the early seventies, what what was the sort of narrative? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think that I think sometimes people credit governments with too much credit when they when they imagine that governments. You know, people say to me all the time, "Hey, man, the reason LSD is banned is because um, governments know that people will rise up and you know." Oppose consumerism. I do. I do not credit Theresa May's government with with enough nous to have that kind of psychopharmacological understanding. I think it's much simpler than that. They just see they don't see a difference between LSD and crack cocaine and heroin. They just tar them all with the same brush. And it's basically apathy and laziness. The reason being is because that's how it's always been. So in a way, the the drug the Drug Misuse Act has become its own self-fulfilling prophecy, whereby because they're illegal, they're dangerous and bad and should be banned, forgetting whether or not they should be illegal in the first place. So I, I, don't, really, I don't really credit these governments these days with having that understanding of the psychedelic experience as being this enlightening thing. That's, I don't think that's why they're doing it at all. They're doing it out of laziness, um, out of fear, um, and mainly out of the fear that um, they would lose votes if they changed it. Now, what we need to do, therefore, in current drug policy reform is we need to have a new approach. I, I'm not a big fan of the cognitive liberty argument as a means of changing things. I, I'm a very big fan of the cognitive liberty argument in itself. I, I truly support the likes of Graham Hancock and others who say, you know, it's my right to get high. This is my brain chemistry. By all means, let's prohibit dangerous activities like caring for children driving, whatever, stealing on drugs. But if I'm sitting alone at home on my sofa, it's my brain chemistry. And if I want to put this molecule into it and I can do it safely, then I should be allowed. You know, we're allowed to do all sorts of potentially risky things. We don't ban scuba diving or horse riding. or, And we also don't ban other things that we consider morally wrong, um, like eating meat or boxing or fishing or religion, which a great many people consider extremely morally wrong. So the concept of fighting the war on drugs purely on the grounds of a moral issue is extremely weak. Because if we're going to do that, by God, do we have to ban boxing and meat eating and keeping pets and all these things as well, which we don't do. So the only war, on which, the only front on which to fight the war on drugs nowadays 
is the moral and ethical argument because it's lost on all the other fronts. It's quite clearly not reducing harms or death or usage or crime. So we're in a very sticky situation. So I think what we need to do, and I think this is one of the problems of drug policy reform, too much of those people in uh, calling for drug policy reform have put the emphasis onto protecting and facilitating drug users. Now, of course, drug users want policy reform because they want to get high and not get busted. But that's a very weak argument on the rest of society, the majority of whom don't use these illicit drugs. So they see changes in drug policy reform just to facilitate the drug user as very weak. They'd rather punish the drug user. What we need to do much more cleverly is make people realize that this policy is bad for everyone, whether you use drugs or not. Even if you hate drugs, even if you never use them and you detest them, the current drug policy as it stands is damaging you. It's costing you billions of pounds every year, and it's not protecting you as a non-drug using member of society. So for example, I don't horse ride, but I'd like to know that the policy in place around horse riding is the right one. I'd like, and especially if I was told billions of my tax every year is going to mop up problems around horse riding because the policy is so inefficient. So we need to shift the argument away from just the drug users calling for policy reform. And we need to get the non-drug users on board. Um, we need to make them realize that it's not just about facilitating drug takers. It's about creating the right social policy for everyone. So I think that's what has to happen. And the only politician that's come close to this in recent times in the UK was Nick Clay, who at the last election, which he lost very badly, he said, if you hate drugs and hate drug users, we still need to look at policy reform. And that's absolutely correct. And so I think that's the angle we need to take going forward. I think this is why... Um... And I would hope that the, uh, one of my little goals for this podcast would be for people, and I know you, I'm sure you would share this, is people who are now entering into, say, academic careers early on or, or, or just, you know, an interest in various different fields that can sort of uh, help the Renaissance, you know, stay grounded and, and progressive. Um these things take time, especially, you know, governments move at the, the, the like tectonic speed. It's very slow at times, these yeah. changes, and it sounds like the current... Uh, body of people have been so patient and you know the different organizations have been so pedantic with what they've asked them to do and i can imagine that being involved in research for a long time or trying to get these things through it must be very infuriating at times to think look just come on you know this is this has been evidence-based for x for x number of years and i think it's very important that there's a continual continual stream of people coming through who have the nice that maybe you know I wouldn't have, or we all have our different skill sets. Maybe somebody who who is interested in in um, political science, for example, that also feels that this should be moved forward. I I see it as very important that there should be another generation of young people coming through with the relevant skill sets who can keep this moving at a pace because governments aren't about to change. They just they don't change things like that over overnight. You know, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on on that. I think it's um it's an interesting question because. You know, I'm a scientist. I work in the realm of evidence-based data. Um, politics doesn't come into it. If, if a, a treatment is shown to be safe and efficacious, then we should be using it. Whereas politics doesn't work in, in an evidence-based way, which is actually quite enlightening to realize, because it ought to, you know, but it clearly doesn't, because 
if it did, then we wouldn't have war because war clearly never works, and um, yet we still do it. So it's a very frustrating arena. A very good example of this, um, in in that data alone doesn't shift governments, is say David Nutt's sacking from the ACMD presidency in two thousand and ten, when he was asked to put together this uh, portfolio on MDMA, um, which I contributed to with some papers on therapy. And he, he put forward this unbiased, evidence-based document, and the government said, ah, that's not the result we were hoping for. Um, and he objected to this and spoke out and then got sacked. So what that shows is it doesn't matter how many papers you put on Theresa May's desk of evidence-based practice. Those are not the things that shift government policy, which then puts uh, um, scientists like myself and David into this very impotent position. Because then what, what does shift practice? What does shift hearts and minds? And the answer is a, lo a, a much more nuanced and subtle way of shifting cultural change. And so what I think we need in drug policy reform here is not just the medical data, because we know that doesn't work alone. As you said, we've had this data very robustly for decades. What we need to do is, I, I think another example would be, say, the, say, homosexuality. We absolutely had to have the placard-waving broken windows and demonstrations in the 60s because we had to push this and we had to change the law. And indeed, the law was changed in 1967. But it wasn't really until the 90s, I think, that we started to get proper cultural shifts in attitudes towards homosexuality. And that came about through normalization. It came about not with the sensational stories, but just the realization, oh, you know Terry down the road, he's gay. Oh, is he? End of conversation. That's it. You know, there's and I think that's what we need to do with psychedelics. It needs to be we need to have media representations, soap opera stories, see it on EastEnders and Home and Away, you know, oh what did you do last night? I took ayahuasca. Oh really? Anyway, I'll have a pound of satsumas, please. You know, that's it. No sort of, I glimpsed God and now I'm going to go and live in Totnes in a teepee, nor, oh, I died, but just, I did it. Because that is actually how people take psychedelics. We need this normalization of just, they are there, they are used in the tens of millions, and they are predominantly safe and positive and beneficial for almost everyone who uses them. And once we get this normalization, then the, then the laws won't make sense. Sure. And it's the sort of chronology is, is different than it maybe should be. You know, like you would say, it should be a case of we have a very evidence-based government uh, in any case. It doesn't, I don't mean specifically one government or another. I'm pretty apolitical on this, but the, same, you know, yeah. the evidence shows X, Y, and Z. And then, uh, and I don't necessarily think it would matter what side of the aisle you're on at times in different countries, but that that's the chronology that should happen. The one thing that I would say, I would sort of respectfully disagree with, you know, you mentioned, say, oh, we had the riots and things like that. Yes, I see it as being a very likely, when any paradigm shift happens or any cultural societal mm -hmm. change, it's usually a cultural or societal change. And then the antecedent evidence comes up and it's like, you know, the, the flustered people in the white coats have been standing outside you know going we've been saying this for 40 years you know and they're like oh yeah, yeah. we didn't listen to you because there wasn't our voters base weren't paying any attention mm. um but one of the things that i think has changed now so there are two options to change anything and this is basic you know at a level of the human psyche conversation or violence 
and that's not my line i'm stealing that from from sam harris and i think that lee's what is now happening in terms which i see it all the time and obviously i'm biased but the ability for people to have long-form discussion like we're having with no, you know, media stings or, you know, you have to get your point across or in six seconds or whatever. This long-form um, medium of podcasting, of blogs, of sort of Patreon-supported accounts means that the I think the appetite for, for nuanced discourse in the centre, mm -hmm. away from the radicals on either side of the spectrum, mm -hmm. has been massively underestimated and... Um, there's so much, f and I've heard other people say, you know, it's it's like a new Gutenberg press. So I wouldn't necessarily agree with the inevitability that it's like, oh, you know, we have to make a lot of noise. And I would also personally feel that utilizing the media to normalize stories through mainstream channels, like which mm -hmm. did definitely was successful with with um, with the gay rights movement, you know, Will and Grace, for example, just normalize it. It's just a sitcom, and mm -hmm. that that sort of storyline falls further into the back. It becomes about the characters, yeah. much more about their sexual orientations. They're yeah. just byproducts. I think that that is a dangerous animal, especially mm -hmm. with the state of the media as it is, mm -hmm. because trying to leverage empathy on mass or use well we'll use the media it i've we've seen how it can be turned on a dime and mm. i think that the only thing that has constancy is long boring conversations and evidence and it takes mm. longer but mm. i think it's more um stable so i don't know i just feel like in the past we needed to do that but we've been through our evangelical adolescence in the form of the second wave i don't think we need to necessarily do that again i think that there i think there are enough people out there who will be able to just stomach boring irish people talking like this to nuance their views and share it amongst themselves i'm very excited about that that prospect mm. and i don't necessarily think that we need to engage in those you know uh exhibitionist cultural shifts i i think it'll happen i just i think the slow burns the way forward i don't know what your thoughts are well i i'd like to share your optimism but you know the question that, <laughs> Maybe, or my the, naivety perhaps the, the question that, <laughs> that that one comes back to all the time is it for all of the well-meaning attempts these laws have persisted you know back in 1965 the big big um uh pe petition around cannabis and, you know, people were convinced back then that cannabis would be legal within two years. There was absolute conviction. And then there then followed 50 years of the most draconian drug policy. So I don't know what's going to work, to be totally honest. And I think we need to attack it from both angles, all angles. As I said, the data, the data argument from the experts alone doesn't seem to work, as David Nutt found out. The, um, I think the Graham Hancock cognitive liberty argument has been a total failure, in my opinion. Um, because that, you know, it's my right to get high argument is just falls on deaf ears for people who don't aren't interested in getting high. You know, the, the hippies have had 50 years of saying it's my right to get high and they've got absolutely nowhere. So I think we're attacking it from all angles. We've got the research that's going on that's demonstrating safety and efficacy. And I do think and we've got just sheer, sheer massive numbers, really. You know, it's um, it's increasing the amount of people who are using psychedelics safely. I think other, there's some other really good developments, like the development of the psychedelic societies around the world. Um, this is now, you know, every, every major town in the UK now has a psychedelic society of people who meet regularly and put on talks and do lectures and do protests. 
and they're they're very much pushing a normalization approach you know there's very much sort of come out of the closet they're trying to get people in in high status um roles and profiles to say yeah i take ecstasy a couple of times a year or yeah i'll take magic mushrooms every now and then and it's not causing me any harm and i still shop in the shopping mall and have a mortgage and you know so it is this normalization so i think we you know i think i i am i'm 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 trying to be optimistic that if we attack it from all angles it'll happen i think what's really clear is that when it happens it'll happen quickly and the tipping point will come very suddenly it'll just suddenly this sudden realization of oh my god what have we what have we been we've been doing all these years this is ridiculous and look at i mean that's exactly what's happened with cannabis in the states and sadly, the thing that's driven it is money. You know, the realization that in this country, we spend 31 million pounds of policing every year chasing cannabis users, which is just patently ridiculous. And the police forces themselves know it. And so there's, there's little, little changes in the UK. Two or three police forces now have officially stated they will no longer arrest people for cannabis offenses. And they've said so to the government. And They've just said quite rightly, they said, look, you've, you've cut our funding. Um, we're going to concentrate on violent crime and rape and um, major public disorder things. We're not going to stop people from using cannabis. And that's one of the one of these schemes is underway in Bristol now. Uh, I think Durham are doing the same thing. Yeah. So there's two or three police forces that have I mean, police forces have been unofficially doing this for decades. Um, it, it's very hard to get a cannabis offense these days. Um, but now they're even going further and they're officially saying we will no longer criminalize people using cannabis because we can't afford to. Now, I think that's great. And again, a sort of critical mass. If all the police forces did that, then then the government would have to look at the law and just say this is this is this is ludicrous. So there's on the one hand, there's the money that's saved. But on the other hand, there's the money to be made. You know, Colorado made something like seven hundred million dollars in the first just on just on the 10% dispensary um, fees, never mind the money they saved by emptying the prisons and not, not chasing after people. So that could very well be a big driver because governments often don't understand morals and ethics, but they do understand money. So the realization that they would, you know, these billions of dollars that are sitting in the hands of criminals could be sitting in the government banks if they could just provide a regulated market and a platform for the, for the sale of these substances. Hmm. I think um, that area of drug policy reform is definitely one that I would like to just be more educated on. Um, is there anybody, you mentioned Apollo, you mentioned obviously Nick Clegg, but is there anybody sensible, empirical, who, you know, you, you think of who's, who's more on, on, on the money with, with regards to, reforming drug policy in the UK? Well, there's, a, there's a number of, of pressure groups. There's a group called Transform that have been very much leading the way. Um, you can certainly talk to them. They, they, put, they put together a really useful document a few years ago, um, which basically set out what a post-prohibition um, society in the UK would look like. And they, and they kind of modelled various different models of different levels of decriminalisation or regulated market or complete legalization on a spectrum with prohibition at one end and harm minimization after that and then legalization and then decriminalization and then regulated market and and they've modeled and they've done some very detailed financial modeling as well and economically what it would look like 
and the evidence is uh, the data is very strong. So um, Transform is certainly a group to talk to. Yeah, very good. Uh, and I think when you can sure show the government that you can turn one one form of green into another, then you tend to probably get a little bit more yeah. more interest. Although, as I've said, it's 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 more difficult than that because, as I've said, even the politicians know this, but they just nobody dare come out come off, uh, stick their head above the parapet and say it to the voters. Um, I think as soon as someone does, and then it'll fall very suddenly and it'll just become ridiculous to do anything else. But at the moment, we're just in this terrible state of limbo that's lasted all this time. Um, and I, I still am somewhat at a loss as to think what is the magic way of shifting it. Um, so I guess we just have to do it from all angles.